0: going to be on page 591. We're going to start in verse two. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. You can sit down. Well, good morning, Redemption North Mountain. Uh, If we've never met before, my name is Xavier. I'm one of the pastors here. And I'm excited to be able to preach from God's word today for us. Uh, So if it is your first time here, I just want to say I would love to say hi to you and be able to meet you after service. If you would be willing just to come up here, I'll be here after the service. and I would love just to meet you. So uh, last week, Chandler and I were in California with the youth ministry, just helping out with the camp. It was a joy to be there and now we're back and Josh is gone in California uh, while we're here. So we kind of just did a little swap Uh, And he's going to be actually heading back from California today. So one thing I wanted to do is, uh, Josh takes time often just to pray for us, even before we jump into God's word. And I would love just to take time to pray for him. So we're going to take time to pray for him, to pray for what God's going to teach us today through his word. And let's just prepare our hearts during that time. So let's just take a moment. Let's just close our eyes. Let's just prepare our hearts before God. So God, we do pray, we pray that you would use your word today, that you would lead us to a place where we would know more of you, and we have a desire to be close to you. God, we pray that you would teach us and lead us during this time. We also pray for Josh. We thank you so much for his care and love and leadership for us. We just pray that while he is on vacation, that you would have given him and his family rest. And that, God, we just pray over him right now that as they prepare to drive back today, that you would keep them safe while they drive uh, and that you would just protect them during that time. God, we love you so much and we thank you. Uh, We love you. Amen. All right, we are in a new series. We're preaching through the book of 1 John. And last week, Josh started this series by going over an overview of the book and then jumping into chapter one of 1 John. And then today, what we're gonna do is we're gonna continue on by going into chapter two and we're gonna be preaching through those first two verses. So it's kind of funny, last week, it was like a whole chapter, this week is just two verses, but there's a lot of depth here. So there's gonna be a lot of different things that we are going to cover. And to kind of just get us in the right mindset, I want to tell you this story. In 1977, Air New Zealand started operating scenic flights over Antarctica. The flights were nonstop 11-hour round-trip flights that offered first-class luxury and a stunning view over the endless ice at the edge of the world. Two years after they started doing these scenic routes, On November 28th, there was a pilot named Jim Collins who was doing his usual route with about 257 people on the flight. This pilot flew and he took two large loops to bring the plane down to about 2,000 feet so that he could offer his passengers a better view. He was assuming that his flight path was the same as the previous flight, so he would not have seen any problems with doing this. The people that were in the plane were enjoying the view, they were taking pictures, they were filming things and talking to each other. But then, out of nowhere, the pilot knew something was wrong. Out of nowhere, the alarms in the plane started to go off. What he thought he was looking at was snow and ice right in front of him. But then, when the alarm started going off, he realized that what he was actually looking at was a mountain, And out of nowhere, six seconds later, too late to pull up, the plane tragically crashed. And there was a loss of all of these people. Now during this time, New Zealand was feeling the weight of this. There was a lot of people that passed away, so there was a deep sorrow because of this. But not only that, they were pointing the finger at everybody and trying to blame whose fault it actually was. So when they finally started doing research, they realized what caused the issue. The pilots that went, they were briefed with a flight path that was different from the one that was put in the plane's computer. Actually, it was only two degrees off. But as they continued to go on, they thought they were going in one direction, when actually they were going in a completely different direction. Then when they realized that this was a problem, it was too late. They had a wrong understanding of the flight path, which led them to a wrong approach. If they had a right understanding, they would have approached it correctly. They never would have done the two loops and got lower. But because of their wrong understanding, they approached the fight incorrectly. So I think about us. We say this all the time here at this church all of life is all for Jesus. And if that's the case, then we approach every aspect of our life through this lens the way that we parent, the way that we are married, the way that we're single, the way that we work or we handle our finances, or whatever it is, we look through this lens of Jesus. So if we have a misunderstanding of Jesus, then it will actually lead us towards a wrong approach of living. And this is actually what John knows when he's writing. This church that he's writing to at this time actually were getting misunderstandings of Jesus from people that were false prophets in a sense. They were coming and bringing false ideas of Jesus, and because of these misunderstandings, people were actually approaching different aspects of their life incorrectly. And what John knows is if they continue in this route, it will actually lead to somewhat of a spiritual death for them. So for him, he wants to warn them of this and to lead them to understand Jesus correctly so that they can approach all of these different aspects of their life correctly as well. And today in this passage, what he wants to do is just this, specifically with the topic of sin. So my big idea for today is this, a right understanding of Jesus gives us a right approach towards sin. A right understanding of Jesus gives us a right approach towards sin, and the opposite is true as well, that a wrong understanding of Jesus actually gives us a wrong approach towards sin. I want to dive into this text and see what it is that John actually does. And I want to break it up in these two kind of parts. First, I just want to see what he talks about Jesus. What is this understanding of Jesus that he wants to lead these people towards? And then how does that actually apply to the main comment he says? He says he's writing these things so that we will not sin. Why does he say that? And how does this understanding of Jesus apply to that? So first, there's some misunderstanding of Jesus that these people have. As mentioned by Josh last week, John was able to grow old in age, and because of this, the church was established for some time now. And what gives John a unique challenge is that the issues the church was dealing with were becoming more subtle. Like there were things that, there was these people that came, they said they had a special and new revelation from God, And what they would say is these truths about Jesus, and then they would put just little lies in there. And it was so subtle that it actually was believable for the people. So for him, for John, what he must do is he must come and bring truth about Jesus directly to the people so that they could understand the Jesus that came in flesh, that he saw and heard and experienced. So let's start with verse 2 and see what he says about Jesus. So verse 2 says this. Um, or this is what the whole passage says. It says, My little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And this is what verse 2 says He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So let's look at just verse 2 for a second, and we're gonna zoom in on one word. He is the propitiation. For our sins, this is not a word that I go around using a lot. Like I don't go around like Anna, did you get the propitiate? Like this is not a word that. So let's just talk about what that means. A general definition is this: Propitiation is the means of appeasing wrath and gaining the goodwill of an offended person, especially with respect to sacrifices for appeasing angered deities. So this word would have not been uncommon for the people that he is writing to. Matter of fact, they actually heard this word in relation to pagan gods. Pagan gods would just get mad at their worshipers for anything. Like a pagan god would just be mad at me for wearing a blue shirt today. I can't believe it. I'm so mad. And what they would need to do is they would need to bring a bribe or a bargain to this pagan god to relieve them and appease them of their wrath. So this was a common thing for people that actually were not worshiping Jesus. And this is something that, at least in that idea, that we experience with people. Like we often do things that cause frustration in other people. And then what do we do? We bring some type of like bargain or bribe to them to relieve them of their anger. Like I think about myself, I had a good friend when I met, I met in seventh grade. So we met at 12 years old. 10 years later, when we were 22, we were on a basketball team together, like a adult league. I rode the bench on the adult league as well. I remember I told you guys I was always riding the bench whenever I played sports, but either way. So we we're playing in this league together and Uh, Me and him were spending time that day, and there was something off about him. I couldn't tell what it was. But then, an hour later after the game, I asked him, what are you doing after the game? And he said, well, it's my birthday today. So just to give you context, for 10 years, I forgot his birthday like every year. And he would always remember my birthday and bring me like gifts and all these different things. So I said, oh, where where are you guys going? And he said, we're going to go to the Cheesecake Factory. You're totally invited. So I said, I'm going to come. So I got in my car and started driving there, and from my glove compartment, I got what I had for scenarios just like this. I got my blank cards from the glove compartment and just started writing him a card. Dear Suleiman, like I'm just like writing it to him. When I get to his house before we leave, I hand him the card, and the wrath or anger or frustration he had with me was relieved as he looked at me and said, you didn't forget my birthday. And I said... Of course I didn't. Why would I ever forget your birthday? Years later, I told him, I lied to you. I definitely did forget your birthday. But this is the way they would have thought about propitiation. Like God being really angry. They have to bring some type of bargain. God, if I bring this, if it's good enough, will you forgive me? Will you not have any wrath towards me? And this is the word John uses. But he uses it in a different way than maybe they would have understood. When we see the full character of God, it might be the same word, but we see a significance under this. So first, let's just look at God's wrath. Like when we think about God and we think about that word, it's hard to kind of associate those two things together. God is merciful, he's loving, but he's also holy and just. His holiness means that he's so set apart from sin, he can't even be in the presence of sin. And his justice means that he always gives the right dues and and consequences to sin. So whenever he acts in mercy or love, he always includes his justice as well. So when the Bible says these words like wrath, like God's wrath, it's not God randomly getting angry, like, I just can't control my anger towards these people. Rather, and this is the way John Stott says it, it's this, it is his settled, controlled holy antagonism to all evil. Like God is opposed to all evil. And to act justly, he must deal with evil and evildoers, which sadly includes all of us. So if God's going to deal with the sin of the sinner, then he also needs to deal with the wrath towards those sinners. And this is where the propitiation comes in. But unlike the pagan gods, we did not need to bring an offer. Neither were we able to bring some type of bargain or bribe towards God to say, is this enough for your wrath? But rather, God took the initiative for us. God is the propitiation, but he's also the initiator of it. Jesus offers himself as a sacrifice to the Father, not only to carry our sins. We often say this, Jesus carries our sins on the cross. And at the same exact time, he also takes on himself all of the wrath of the Father for our behalf. He is the initiation and the fulfillment of all of God's wrath. He took it all on himself. So God actually does this work for us. And then he adds something to this. This is what he says. He says, this is not only for us, but it is also for the sins of the whole world. Not just for ours, also for the sins of the whole world. It's really important for John to say this, especially to the audience that he's writing to. Like Josh mentioned uh, last week, These people believed that they had a special, secret, new revelation from God, and they were taking people out of the church. But when they would take people, they would say, the only way that you're saved, the only way that you're part of the elect is if you have this very special revelation. It was extremely exclusive, saying only those can actually join. So when John says this, he needed to clarify the true gospel and that Jesus' death was not only sufficient for some, but it was sufficient for all. This does not mean that all are saved, but what it means is that his death is actually sufficient for all who would come. It's effective for all that are willing to believe in him. There's nothing that they can add to it, and anyone can join through Jesus. The reason he could say this is because of this little thing he says in verse 1. He says, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He was the only one being fully God, fully man, perfect in all ways. I was able to make this sufficient sacrifice so that he can say it is sufficient for all who would come. Anyone that joins the blood of Christ is sufficient. No matter your occupation, lawyer, janitor, teacher, nanny, come join. No matter who you voted for, you voted for Trump, you voted for Biden, come join. No matter your ethnicity or race, black, white, Mexican, Asian, come join. No matter the sin you've committed, you sinned and you lied, you sinned and you got high again, You sinned and you slept with your girlfriend or your boyfriend? You sinned and you cheated on your taxes? Come join. His blood is sufficient for all. And he doesn't stop there. If you go back, this is what he says in the second half of verse one. He says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ. Jesus or John knows something about us and something about Jesus. He knows we are all going to sin. For the rest of our lives, sin is going to be something that we deal with. Like some of us here, after we accepted Jesus, have committed some small sins in our life. And some of us have committed some significant sins. And John actually knows this. But he encourages us that Jesus does not only act on our behalf of our past sins, but also of our present and our future sins. And how does he do this? In the book of Hebrews, it says that Jesus intercedes for us. It's kind of language to say that he's a high priest. But John uses a different word. He says he is our advocate. The only picture I can get in my mind is me in sixth grade. So... I'm, I'm in sixth grade. I'm hanging out with my best friend, Donovan. We're riding bikes around. I got my flip phone in my pocket, and we're just living life. And we're at the school, and his mom pulls up to pick us up. So I don't know anything about the type of truck that she had. All I knew was a brand new red truck. That's all I know, brand new red truck. We take our bikes, and we put it in the bed of the truck, and then she drives me to my house to drop me off. Now, in sixth grade, I had an abnormal amount of confidence in myself. I don't know why. Like, I just thought I was the strongest guy. I thought I was the smartest guy, whatever it is. So I went to go get my bike, and I thought to myself, why would I open the bed of the truck if I'm as strong as I am? Like, why not just pick it up from the side of the truck? So I pick up the bike, and once it's in the air is the moment I realized I'm not close to as strong as I think I am. I start like falling and dragging my bike on the side of this truck. And the, there's like pegs, it's like a BMX bike with pegs. You just hear uh, like on the side of this brand new red truck. So Donovan's mom and my dad come over to the side that I'm on the truck. They're looking at what I just did. The only thing I could think to say is, I think that was there already. Like it was, <laughs> they're just like, we all know that was not there. We know what you just did. There's this sweet moment where I don't know what to say to Donovan's mom. Like I, sorry. Like I just don't. I don't know what to say next. And my dad. Like all I can. Like when I picture, it, I can think of my dad like standing in my place and making a defense for me that I couldn't. I couldn't pay for it. I'm 12 years old. I didn't work. My dad pays a price I couldn't pay. He stands in between me and the person that I just sinned against in some way. And he stands as my advocate. Stands in a place where I couldn't. Whenever we sin, like just think about this. How do you think Jesus responds? Like do you think Jesus is like shaking his head at you, like, again. Do you think Jesus like sighs to himself out of like frustration? <sighs> like what is it that we actually feel that Jesus is doing when we sin? And what about those hidden sins? Like Date Orland says it this way, how do you think about Jesus' attitude toward that part of your life that only you know? The overdependence on alcohol, the lost temper again and again the fear of man that shows itself in people-pleasing, that habit of pornography. Who is Jesus in those moments? Not who is he once you've conquered that sin, but who is he in the middle of spiritual failure? In the middle of our sin, God does not make us plead our own case. In the middle of our sin, Jesus stands as our advocate our comforting defender, and he makes a defense on our behalf to the Father. And he uses his goodness, his righteousness, and his finished work as the means of his defense on our behalf. And because of this, we can have confidence in our fellowship with God. Because even as we sin, we have an advocate that stands on our behalf. He advocates for us as the only one righteous and as the sufficient sacrifice. And because of this, I think about what Sandy preached two weeks ago. We could actually say the words of Romans 8 with confidence that nothing will separate us from the love of God. That Jesus is actually sufficient for our salvation. Jesus, the righteous, the propitiation, the advocate, That all these things staying together is what makes it sufficient. You take any of these things out and it won't work. If he's not righteous, he can't actually be our propitiation. If he's not our propitiation, he cannot come to the Father as our advocate. And if he's not our advocate, then our current sins are not dealt with. But God actually made this secure. He covered all bases and displayed his love in this way towards us. This is God's love and passion for you and for me on display. So with all this in our mind, I just want to ask you a question. Do you know how God feels about you? Like imagine God thinking about you right now. What do you assume God feels when you come to mind? Some of us may think he feels disappointed. Some of us may feel that he feels angry with us. Maybe some of us think that he doesn't really care to think of us that often. Or maybe some of us think that he wants more out of us. The reason we often think these things is because we believe that our sin is the first thing that catches God's eye. But what if I told you when you come to mind, God smiles? Like every time I get a picture of my wife and my son, she'll send me pictures sometimes of them throughout the day. When I see them, I just can't help but smile. Like this is how one person says it. David Benner says this. The truth is, that when God thinks of you, love swells in his heart and a smile comes to his face. God has went the distance to take care of his wrath. When we are found in Jesus, God has actually took upon himself to go out of the way to take care of the wrath that was due to us. So what's left? His love for us and his presence with us. Why is John writing these words? He says this so that we can have fellowship with God and with others, that our joy may be complete, and that we, we may know we have eternal life, which is what? Fulfilled life, and to know God. This is the hope that we have in Jesus. So, if all this is true, if the wrath of God is settled, Jesus is advocating on our behalf. We have God's love for us, his presence with us. The question in my mind is, why does John say he's writing these things so that we won't sin? Let's just look at that verse again. Verse one. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I think a lot of us can get stuck up with some of the wrong approaches to sin. Uh, the first one is this. We, sometimes we get stuck striving for God's favor. Like sometimes we still live under the idea that if we do not avoid sin, then God is making a checklist of all of our wrongdoing. You didn't read your Bible again? Check. You lied again? Check. I saw that thought you just thought? Check. Check. Like, he's sitting up there trying to count all of our sins. And to be honest with you, this is kind of where I struggle. Like, to take him at his word. Like, I'm always nervous and I'm sinning. Like, Netflix just came out with a new rule. You know about this? Netflix, if you are in one household and you have Netflix, it's only for that household. They, like, shut it off for anyone that's not in the household. Now, I'm still logged in to my, wait, 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 to, the, to the, my parents-in-law's Netflix and I'm like calling other pastors, is it sin for me to watch something on Netflix? Like, please pray for me right now. I'm really struggling. Like, it's just like, I literally am like, am I sinning right now? Like, so I'm always overthinking every little detail. I was telling someone the story before. They're like, did you come up with a conclusion? Is it sin? I'll tell you guys later. But like, I'm always thinking about these things. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't avoid sin. Rather my worry for us is that we might be thinking it's our job to appease God. Like we might think we need to make sure that we are avoiding sin so that we can prove our worth to God and gain more favor from him. But like we just learned from John, Jesus took all the father's wrath and he's continuously advocating for us. So this is actually a wrong approach to sin. What's the other side though? Sometimes we can sit in that and be like, sweet, let's jump all the way to the other side, which is this. Sometimes we think we treat Jesus' work as a free pass to sin. We can think, well, if Jesus died for me, he's pleading for my case, then while I'm here, let me get some sin in. Like, this is like a verbatim quote from somebody. Someone (laughs) said, I feel like I need to sin more because I don't want any leftover blood. Like, I need to make every drop count. You're like, whoa, that's like really far on one side. But seriously, some of us go, okay, Jesus died for me. I don't need to feel guilty about my sin anymore. Like whenever I sin, I could actually sin in more confidence because Jesus saved me. Now I have confidence in all the sin in my life. But this is also a wrong approach to sin because John says he's drawing these things to us so that we won't sin. So if both of these are wrong approaches, then how do we actually approach sin in our life? I believe that our approach to sin must be through the lens of love in fellowship and relationship with God With others and with ourselves. We have to remember why or how John's writing this letter. An older man with a really big heart for Jesus and for the people he's ministering to. He's writing a letter that keeps on pointing to the same things over and over again. And rooted in the heart of this is the greatest commandment to love God and to love others. So when he starts this section, this verse, he does so with a heart of deep care and love. What does he say? My little children. This isn't a demeaning phrase. This is like him going, I really care about you guys. So my dear children, I'm writing these things to you so that you won't sin. He has a true heart for them and a desire that they are not confused to a life filled with sin or a life of trying to appease God, all with a desire for their joy to be complete in the fellowship with God and with others. So how I kind of think about sin in relation to this is what are the actual consequences of sin? I think about the original sin. If you don't know the story, God creates the world, He creates everything good, and there is no evil. He gave Adam and Eve, the first human creations, one law to abide by to not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There is a serpent that comes on the scene, he deceives them, and they both partake in eating. But what's really interesting is what happens next something that I call relational corruption. So, this is what happens right after they eat, the first thing they notice is that they're naked and they clothe themselves. Like the first thing that happens is there's this like shame that's filled with them, and they cover themselves up because there is this corruption with their relationship even with themselves. The first thing is that they are actually corrupted with their relationship with their selves, themselves. The second thing is this. They hear the sound of God walking, and they hide themselves from his presence because they said they were afraid the God that loves them, that created them, that was with them, they're now hiding from out of fear. The second thing that happens is there's a corruption with their relationship with God. And the last thing is God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And Adam does like the thing that no husband should ever do. He's like, the woman that you gave me? (laughs) Oh my gosh, Adam. She's the one who... There is this immediate corruption between their relationship with each other. So here sin enters in, and there's all of this relational corruption that enters into the world. There's all of this corruption that we see, but this is also the reality presently. When we sin, it corrupts our fellowship with ourselves, with each other, and with God. Like God took care of the healing of the fellowship between us and him, yet when we sin, it still alters the way that we view God. Not only that, but when we hear all this, that Jesus took the wrath for us, that he took the sin for us, he's advocating for us, we actually have a freedom to focus on how our sin impacts the way that we love others. You know, I think back about some of the sin that I committed in High school and in college, and during that time, whenever I would go to repent for those sins, I would be so nervous about my relationship with God. Like I would just go to repent, begging God, please, would you forgive me? Because I just wanted me and him to be good, but I never thought about how my sin was affecting other people around me. It wasn't until years later where two mentors of mine were leading me through this like, life story experience where I was actually going through this story of my life and repenting for different moments of sin in my life. And as I brought these sins up, one thing that they had me do was actually bring the names of the people that were either on the other side of that sin or were included. And as I brought those people up, I gave them to God. And it was in that moment that I realized I actually was bringing corruption and pain and hurt into their lives through my sin that my sin was actually an act of unlove towards them. So when I think about this passage, I think about this desire to avoid sin. We should not be avoiding sin to appease God, but rather we should be avoiding sin as an act of love towards God and towards each other. That actually our avoiding of sin is an act of love. Like, think about the ways that our sins bring corruption to the relationships around us. When we lie, when we steal, when we are unrighteously angry, when we commit sexual sin, or we hide secrets, or even hidden sins like pornography or getting drunk, these things bring corruption to the relationships that we have with others and bring corruption to the world and into other people's lives. So a right understanding of Jesus leads us to know that we are free from the wrath of God. And because of that, we actually have a freedom to avoid sin out of an act of love towards God and towards others. We do not avoid sin to appease God. We do not avoid sin as a self-help message, but we avoid sin as an act of love. We avoid sin as an act of desire for fellowship with God and with others. We avoid sin to display the love of God to this world, and we avoid sin as a form of love towards neighbor. So as I bring all this to a close, I want to tell us how we could actually practice this. How could we continuously live in this freedom from Jesus and approach sin with the desire to be in fellowship with God and with others? And I think that we do this by building a continual practice of confession in our life. Josh mentioned this last week as well, but I wanted to continue pushing into it, especially because it's a word that's used often by Christians, but rarely practiced in a deep way. Like confession is really good for the soul. It's good for healing fellowship, but it's really hard to do. The way I think of it is, uh, I still remember when Avengers Infinity War came out. I was a Marvel nerd during that time. And I bought the tickets to see the uh, release of the movie. So my wife and I are in the movie. I'm like just getting giddy about the movie. I think it's like 10 minutes in. I'm like, big smile on my face. I can't wait to see what Iron Man does. Like I'm just getting pumped. And as I'm watching the movie, I pick up my IC and I take a sip. And I realize this isn't my IC. Like my IC is over here. So I look over. He's not looking. It's like this random guy. It's dark in the movie theater. So I just like quietly... (laughs) Like I just pretend like <laughs> I think like five minutes goes by. He like taps me on the shoulder. He has like a really deep voice. I still remember his voice. He's like, hey man, did you drink some of my icy? I was like, I'm gonna be really honest with you right now. I didn't actually like partake in any of it, but my mouth was on your straw. <laughs> He's like, dude, can you just give me a new straw? I was like, yeah. I tapped my wife, I was like, can you get a new straw? She's like, <laughs> it's like, no, you need to go get the new straw. I was like, oh gosh, I like ran over. It, I, I just think about like, it's a silly example, but I was like legitimately embarrassed to tell this random guy that I put my mouth on a straw. Like it was embarrassing for me. I really didn't want to say it. Like it would have been easier just to be like, what? No, dude. Like, but I, I got to get it out, even though it was embarrassing. Like If a silly example like that is that hard to like get out, I just think about how our sins in our life, like serious, deep things in our life are hard to actually get out and to say and to confess. To say, I'm actually committing this sin right now. It's embarrassing. It's uncomfortable. It is hard to do. But God's desire is as we confess these things, we are actually confessing more than just the sins themselves. When we confess sins, we are not just saying the sin, but we are confessing along with it the forgiveness of God. When we confess our sins, we are not just confessing the sin, but we're confessing that Jesus is the propitiation. We're confessing that he is our advocate. We are confessing that we might be unrighteous, but that Jesus is fully righteous. We are confessing love and our desire to live in truth, in purity, and in fellowship. As we confess our sins, it is more than just a sin that comes out. Adele Calhoun says it this way, true repentance means we open the bad in our lives to God. We invite him to come right in and to look at our sin with us. We don't hide behind being good, moral people. We don't pretend to be other than we are. We don't disguise the truth by pointing out all the good we've done. We tell it like it is, without rationalization or denial or blame, to the only person in the universe who will unconditionally love us when we are bad. We hand over the pretense, image management, manipulation, control, and self-obsession. And in the presence of the Holy One, we give up on appearing good and fixing our sin. We lay down our ability to change by the power of the self. We turn to Jesus and we seek forgiveness. So this is how we can actually practically do this. Some of us need different confessions in our life. This is how I would have closed today. Just think about where do you need to confess in your life right now? The first one is this. Some of us just need to take that first step, just to confess that Jesus is Lord. Some of us here are still kind of on the fence. Uh, Do I really believe this? Do I want to give my life to Jesus? Do I believe that I'm a sinner and I need the first step is just confessing that Jesus is Lord. Some of us just need to start there. Some of us need to confess out loud to God, like literally. We need to go into our car this week by ourselves, turn off the radio and just say, all right, God, I'm gonna say all my sins out loud. Because through that, we actually gain freedom. And not only that, but we actually confess the severity of our sin, but also the forgiveness of God over those things. Some of us need to confess to a friend. Like we need to say our sins out loud to another person so that they can embody Jesus' love to us and help lead us out of that sin. And the last one is some of us need to confess how our sins have impacted others. Some of us need to do that to ourselves, like just to admit these are the people that I've actually hurt. Some of us need to do that with God, but some of us, depending on the scenario, need to pick up the phone need to write a letter, need to get coffee with the person and just say, I sinned against you. This is what I did and I'm sorry. And do that as our act of love towards them and God. So with all that being said, I want to invite our worship team up. I want to invite also the communion ushers up as well as we close this time. After our message each week, we take time to partake in communion, which is a reflection of the blood of Jesus and the body of Jesus. Through this reflection, we always point back to his sufficient sacrifice. And as we do so today, what I want you to do is to reflect on where is it that you need to confess today? Do you need to just start with that first step? Do you need to confess that Jesus is Lord? Maybe you need to confess a sin about another person that you actually have impacted. Or maybe there's a sin that you're just holding on to that you need to confess. By doing that, bringing the love of God upon you and allowing him to shower you with that. With all that being said, let me pray before we go into communion and let's take the time to do that. So Jesus, we just thank you for your love. We thank you for your kindness and your grace upon us. We thank you that your work is sufficient for us. God, we thank you that you are constantly leading and guiding us. And we just pray first that we would constantly understand how you see us, that you have went the distance to pursue us. And God, that we could actually rest secure in your work and your love. We just pray that as we look at the sins in our life, that we would have a desire to avoid those things, not solely as a way to prove ourselves to you, God. Would you actually help rid that in us? But rather, would you lead us with a passion to avoid our sins, to love you, to love others? God, would you bless this time as we reflect on these truths, as we worship you. We love you so much. Amen.